more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. But there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Miriam. And I'm Lisa Hildebrand. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up and coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and today we are lucky to be joined by Jenna Fryer, recent master's graduate student and soon-to-be PhD student in food and science technology in the College of Ag- Agricultural Sciences. So hi, Jenna. Hi, thanks for having me on. <laughs> hi. <laughs> um, so like I said, you are a food scientist, uh, and you study something, you're a, sp- a specialty, special kind of food scientist, an, an enologist, right? Yeah. So I study wine, so specifically looking at the sensory properties of wine, looking at the flavors, aromas, that sort of stuff. Hands up, who knew that an enologist was a wine scientist? I didn't. Not not me. My hand is up. Yeah, my hand is up too. So it's it's E-N-O-L-O-G, right? Anology, something like that. Mm -hmm. Cool. Okay, so you you study the impact of sensory things, um, and you're studying specifically smoke, Fire, wildfire on wine. Yep. So I'm specifically focused on how wildfire smoke impacts grapes and then the resulting wine from those wildfire impacted grapes. And is there a a grape in particular that you are focusing on? Red versus white? Uh, So specifically, I look at red wines. I'll be looking at whites as well in the future, but red wines are more impacted. So the difference between red and white wine is that red wine includes skin contact, so the skins of the red grapes are included during fermentation, while white grapes, they are pressed off the skins and are kept separately. So because smoke compounds remain predominantly in the skins, I'm focusing more on the red wines. But uh, overall, I'll be looking at both at the end of the day. And and to be clear, this is is not a good thing, right? Like people, if someone were to drink it, it wouldn't be, can I buy this kind of wine? So overall, uh, Smoke-affected wines, or what is called a smoke taint in the wine industry, is considered a defect to wine quality. So overall, it's not overly great. I personally don't like smoke-affected wines, but um, you can still buy them. Uh, Anything from 2020 may have seen some level of smoke, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's bad or that you'll be able to perceive that it's bad. Mm. And you you noted something really interesting about some 2020 uh, Oregon and probably also California wines, like differences between 
um, prices of, say, a Pinot Noir purchased in 20, from, uh, a Pinot Noir from 2020 versus one from 2019. Yeah, so a 2020 vintage, uh, which means that it was just the grapes were grown in 2020, uh, are more of a drink now wine. So you kind of need to drink it immediately because over time, those smoke compounds just become even more potent. Mm. So uh, because you can't age it as long, you can't like keep it and forget about it. You kind of have to drink it now. They are being sold for a little bit less, but that doesn't doesn't mean you shouldn't go out and try them. Gotcha. <laughs> and just, see if you like a smoked wine. I mean, right. there, there might be people out there that really do like it. Yeah. And for those who, who may not know, the reason why 2020 Vintage is has this kind of flavor is because there were really bad wildfires that were happening in Oregon. And I'm assuming that that's sort of like why this is important is because when there are wildfires, it can affect this sort yeah. of taste. Especially and, because wildfires, especially in 2020, if anyone was here in early September, how bad it was, mm. even in Corvallis, uh, it happens during that time is during harvest. Mm. So the grapes were being impacted at their most like susceptible time. Mm. So it was a very much a this issue is occurring at the time we need these grapes. And so it became even more pressing. Right. And wh- I mean, wine is a huge industry in Oregon. Yeah, totally. And you said California um, as well. Wines were affected, obviously, as well by, by wildfires. Um, so, yeah, it makes a lot of sense that that, <laughs> that there's some research um, looking into it. And you are part of that research. Um, I guess before we before we go um any further i think we've already mentioned the word flavor in here um but just just so people know out there 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 is actually a difference between flavor and taste which i never knew um do you want to do you want to clue in the people jenna (laughs) (laughs) yeah sure so flavor is specifically so volatile compounds impart flavors to foods so volatiles are taken in via two different pathways which is overall known as olfaction which is just a fancy way of saying your sense of smell So you take in those volatile compounds more traditionally, as you know, of smell through your nose. But actually, there's a secondary pathway through the back of your throat, which is what gives flavors to foods. So when you're tasting some when you taste, quote unquote, something floral, that's actually a flavor. So there are volatile compounds imparting those floral flavors. And whereas taste is more of those traditional five tastes that you learn in elementary school, the sweet, sour, bitter, umami and salty. So, so you're saying it's essentially like sort of smelling through your nose or through your mouth, and that has a special name to it, right? Yeah. So it's considered retronasal olfaction, which is just a scientist's fancy way of saying that you're taking in those volatile molecules through the back of your throat as opposed to your nose. I feel smarter knowing that, but I'm probably still going to say, wow, this tastes really good. Right. <laughs> Even as a person who studies it, I still say taste, and I have to like correct myself every time. <laughs> and so, aroma also is like a flavor, right? Aroma is what I'm smelling, mm-hmm. not retronasally. Yeah, so that would be considered orthonasally or through your nose. And you were telling us about like lavender, maybe as like a kind of how I was thinking about it. That's a good way for me to think about it. That lavender. Oh, do you, you want to tell us about the lavender? Yeah, example. so in on my undergrad, I specifically studied olfaction in general, so looking at the difference between orthonasal, or through your nose, and retronasal, through your mouth. So specifically, I was looking at floral flavors, and lavender was one of the best examples of this, because when you go and you smell lavender, it has a very sp- particular smell. Right. But when you eat something that has lavender in it, or drink lavender coffee, which is very popular, especially as spring is coming to Oregon, <laughs> um, 
they can have very different sensations. And that's because when you take in those same molecules via those two different pathways, they are perceived differently. Mm. To me, that's crazy. It's the same molecule. It's the same like olfactory thing. And yet the brain is processing it in a different way. Yeah. It's not- so it's one of those things that is still continued to be researched. It's still kind of one of those big unknowns. But that's kind of the fun of working in sensory science and with humans is that there's only so much you can study and there's some that's just left up to hmm. chance. Yeah. <laughs> Perception, chance. The, yeah. the wonderful body, the <laughs> fascinating body. Um, Jenna, you're at this really um, fun, I think, not really crossroads, but but part in uh, like stage in your graduate career, I guess. You've just defended your master's last week. Mm-hmm. Congratulations. Ooh, congrats. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, and about to transition into the PhD, um, although kind of already working on it. Um, and so we're going to discuss both your master's um, work and your, your future PhD work a little bit. Um, but I guess tell us briefly sort of what the master's focused on, like what the goal of the master's was. Yeah, so my master's really focused on some sensory methodologies. So really trying to make sure that we are being as controlled as possible when conducting our studies to be able to understand smoke as best as possible. So smoke flavors can last a really long time, which can lead to what is considered a sensorial carryover bias, specifically with those flavors carrying over from sample to sample. So when we're specifically talking in winemaking, a winemaker could taste a barrel of wine that is very heavily smoke affected and then taste a barrel of wine that is not smoke affected at all. But if they're too close together, it can lead to that carryover and it could lead them to reject that second barrel that is completely Mm. fine that they could bottle and sell and people would enjoy just because of that carryover effect. Mm, So my goal was to find how long the taste between those two needed to be separated to be able to account for this carryover and more specifically looking at different rinsing strategies to be able to lessen that time as much as possible. Okay, so this is like if I have, if I'm drinking the the smoky wine, it's sort of um, to get that taste out of it. Like if I eat garlic or something, I'm thinking about like how quickly can I get that taste out of my mouth so not everything tastes like smoky. Yeah, got it. but also trying not to... incorporate any new flavors that will then. So garlic's a little potent. (laughs) Right, like you wouldn't want to add something else. So that's, you're trying to find this neutral thing. And and, um, so how, if you want to try to maybe walk us through, how did you... uh, You you developed, you found something, right? Mm -hmm. What was was the the magic, the secret sauce? So what ended up working the best as of current times, we're still working on trying to get the time down as much as possible, but is actually a glucose rinse. So it's a glucose sugar solution that isn't sweet. It's a low enough concentration that you don't think it's sweet. It just kind of tastes like water. Mm. Um, And then you have to separate the wines by 90 seconds, which is still kind of lengthy, but it's better than the like three minutes that we started with. Uh So uh, we did this using our sensory panel. We had the around 50 panelists come in and they would drink a smoke affected wine. And then over the course of two minutes would rate the intensity of different smoke attributes over the course of those two minutes so we could kind of see how fast they dissipated. Yeah, quick plug here for the um, sensory wine panel. No, I'm getting that wrong. What is that? Where do people sign up? Yeah, so for OSU Wine Sensory, (laughs) if you are a wine drinker and are interested in maybe getting paid to drink a little bit of wine, um, if you go to beav.es slash wine, you can sign up for our wine sensory panel. 
Yeah, and there's also a link to that on the blog post mm-hmm. for this, so you can check it out there. Yeah, blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. Yep. It'll be the first blog at the top. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. Drink some wine and get paid, and help people like Jenna with their research. Yeah, and and part of what you're doing is like you were saying, they have to sort of taste the smokiness and then discern over time how long it takes for the smokiness to dissipate with these different rinses. And you were telling us about how you had to train these people, right, to um, discern different kinds of senses. Yeah, so smokiness in wine is quite different. Like, smokiness exists in other foods. We have smoked cheeses, smoked meats, which are obviously pleasant. They are, they exist, (laughs) and most people enjoy them. But the smokiness in wine is quite different and not great, um, especially because what is considered an ashy aftertaste kind of is like if you were to lick an ashtray (laughs) or the smell on your clothes the day after a campfire, Uh which uh, is not overly pleasant just by smelling, but especially in your mouth. Mm. Right. So we tried to equilibrate the panelists as best we could on those very unique sensations. Right. Because obviously most people probably won't have licked an ashtray and so don't know know what like an ashy mouth flavor is right yes i would certainly hope not. yes yeah <laughs> fingers crossed so so you asked people to rate four different attributes after tasting the wines right what were those four yeah so they were smoky and ashy which were specifically those smoke related attributes and we not only wanted to look at things that were considered smoky but also look at those more Pleasant, typical wine attributes. So included as well was a mixed berry attribute and floral. Right. So as Miriam said, you you needed to train people on this. So you you had to be a bit of like, I don't know, like a I picture like a mad scientist yeah. in a lab, like trying to come up with something you could give people like not an ashtray to I guess like have emulate. a reference for ashy. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> talk yeah. us through those because that's this is quite a fun story. Yeah, super fun. Yeah. So ashy was a bit difficult. It, it's quite a unique sensation. It's nothing that I've personally ever experienced before. <laughs> but after spending hours just trying to Google like what is ashy and only coming up with uh, cigarette smoke, um, I finally found this article about this restaurant in the UK that was using at specifically made from burnt leeks to garnish their (laughs) dishes at this very upscale restaurant. Mm. Of course it would be leeks in the UK. I feel like they eat a lot of leeks. (laughs) No? I I, I don't know. I I would agree looking at their recipes. (laughs) So like a salad with like leek ash on like finished with some leek ash? Yeah, it would be like salads or like a chicken dish like dusted with leek ash. Of course course, that all sounds very pleasant. Mm. But I was like, hmm, I was like I wonder how that tastes um, (laughs) just by itself so what I did was I bought some leeks I burnt them to an absolute crisp and then I seeped them in water kind of like you would do tea or coffee overnight in my french press and then I pressed them like coffee and poured it out and drank it and regretted my decision immediately but at the end of the day I did find my reference it was almost perfect for trying to describe that ashy flavor in wine you Kind of are like a, a mad scientist in that way. I feel like your your idea of that is right. Yeah, sacrificing the French press and like pulling all these exactly. yeah, items I had to, out of uh, Wash it out with bleach afterwards. It was quite uh, oh the flavor soaked in quite well. Wow. And so, how did you kind of? Um, I guess was it just you saying like, oh yeah, this tastes ashy. This is going to be my reference. Or there w- was there some like quantitative way to 
I guess, to like check, is there like an ashy compound in here? Yeah. So it first started out, it was just me. And then, of course, I begrudgingly made my roommates and friends that were around me try it. Here, try. Try this. What does it taste like? And then I moved on to giving it to my lab mates to confirm that, like, I'm not just making this up. And then finally, we did get it sent for some chemical testing. And it does contain some of the similar organic compounds that is found in smoke affected wines. So it is a good reference, both from a chemical standpoint and from a human perception standpoint. Amazing. Yeah, that's actually it. I feel like you're in the right field if you can, if you were able to test that and then confirm it later that like it really does have the ashy compounds into it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so, okay, so that was ashy. What about the smoky? So smoky was a little bit easier. Again, it's a little bit different than smoked meats. So a lot of people were like, oh, just use like liquid smoke that you can buy at any grocery store or specialty store. But that was just like not correct. It was a little bit too pleasant, uh, which is unfortunate to say. (laughs) But so what we used instead is a heavily peat smoked whiskey. Mm, So whiskey, because it contains alcohol, has kind of a similar manifestation of those smoky flavors. So we diluted it so it no longer tasted like whiskey, but we could really still get that prevalent smokiness. And then the other two, mixed berry and floral, much easier to get at, right? Yeah, so those are very standard for like sensory scientists everywhere. So mixed berry was just jam that you mixed in water and people could drink it. And then floral was just using coffee syrups or the syrups that you would see at any coffee shop. And so then you had these, you trained them, and it seemed like you had some surprising finding that you didn't expect through this experiment. Yes. So when people finished, I like had my results. I was looking through them. But then there were some people that I was like, hmm, in the highly smoked wine, which was quite unpleasant from my personal standpoint to taste, they got absolutely no smokiness or ashiness from it. They found that it tasted exactly the same as every other wine in the set, which encompassed a high smoke wine, a moderate smoke wine, and a no smoke wine. And I was like, well, that's interesting. And so it turns out that there are some people that just can't perceive the flavors that are associated with wildfire smoke and wine, which is a cool conclusion, but not super helpful from my evaluation standpoint. (laughs) Yeah, you said something like a sixth of all of the participants weren't able to detect the smokiness. Yeah, so there hasn't been great research to specifically call out exactly how many in the population, but it's looking about between one sixth and one eighth of the population. Wow. Wow. And so did you decide to just exclude those people from your data set or yeah so unfortunately we don't love to do that Mm, because that limits our numbers but we had to because they were completely like taking them out changed our results completely right so we had to exclude them yeah and we now have a database of those that are specifically smoke sensitives moving forward Ooh, smoke sensitive (laughs) they should buy those cheaper bottles of wine i feel like yes if you can't taste smoke go for it (laughs) those 2020 pinot noirs everybody the the toasty notes or something right yes (laughs) um and how did you how did you actually so you had the three different kinds of wines how did you decide you know this is the smoky this is the mild and this is the non-smoky what was the process there Or did you decide? Yeah, so I was very lucky that I was actually provided wine from Washington State University. So they produced it up there at their winery, and they were artificially smoked. So Mm. we actually have a similar setup here for our research winery that's down in Monroe. 
But I they, did not know that there that OSU had a winery. Neither prior to did talking I. To you. Yes, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and there's actually a photo of you on the blog uh, at the winery, right? Yep, at yeah. the vineyard, at like the vineyard. along the vines. Yeah. Um, but so we can set up smoke cages. So these we can completely close off and pump smoke into them at different concentrations to be able to produce smoke affected grapes in a little bit more of a controlled setting. So Washington State produced the wines that I used in my study. So they heavily smoked some and then moderate, and then I had a control. Wow. Can you, can normal folk like Miriam and I go to the OSU winery? Is that oh, a thing? Yeah. Can... Um, so the winery is on campus. It's most of the time locked. If you pop by, it's in Withycombe. Uh, sometimes we'll be doing stuff in there and I'm, we would always be happy to show people around, but most of the time we're not in there unless gotcha. it's during harvest season. The vineyard is closed to the public though. Ah, uh, makes sense. Makes perfect sense. Science yeah. ongoing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> wow. So, right. So you had, right. The goal of the masters was to find an optimal rinse. Um, so I, uh, to, I guess, cleanse people's palates as quickly as possible and to get that time in between down as much as possible. You accomplished that. You found the glucose rinse was the winner. And, and what were the other ones that you were trying? Uh, so in specifically the second study, because the first one was more experimental. Uh, we were looking at pectin, which is just a very traditional rinse for wine sensory analysis, and then an ethanol solution and a lipid solution just due to the solubility of the compounds in both of those types Go, of got rinses. It. Okay, so, sorry. No, no, it's totally fine. And then you also had that you know, that surprising other finding of the you know one-sixth or to one-eighth of your participants not being able to detect smokiness at all so how all this work isn't um you know isn't just to be published and for you to move on to something else you're actually going to use your own you know findings for your phd work right how Mm -hmm. does that kind of factor into the next steps yeah so as i move forward into the phd i'm continuing with sensory so having that rinse is really awesome so i know that i'm getting as accurate results as possible and so i'm first gonna be starting to look at rebuilding a smoke-affected wine. So the compounds that we've been targeting for a while now aren't super representative of what the flavors that humans experience in wine. From a chemical standpoint, they're great markers, but from a human experience standpoint, they don't really showcase what a smoke-affected wine is like. So trying to rebuild a smoke-affected wine is to try to be able to find better markers. Mm. And then from there, looking at consumer acceptance and preference. So there's not a lot of research out there looking at do people like smoke-affected wines? Is it specific types of grapes that they like more than others? Is Uh. it based on dietary preferences? So if you like smoked foods, do you like smoked wines? Right. And then also looking at regional differences. So I'm originally from New York. I really didn't know what a wildfire was until I moved out here in the <laughs> right. middle of September 2020. Oh right. And Welcome to the West Coast, yeah. Jenna. I descended into the apocalypse. Yeah. So I was like, oh, this is why my research is relevant. Yeah. So trying to see if people's different understanding of what a wildfire is also impacts their perception of smoke-affected wines. Oh, so like if you're an Oregonian, you have more like understanding for a smoky wine versus like like, I don't know, a New Yorker who's like, 
this is the worst thing ever. Wow. Right. Yeah, that I can see it going both directions. Mm. Both um, people on like the East Coast being more sensitive because it's completely unusual or like not being able to notice it because they've never been exposed before. Oh, right. like not exposed to the smoky air or something. Yeah. Or the novelty of it is so interesting that it's yeah. good. Oh, Maybe. yeah. That's fascinating. But this is what you'll find out. And I, I also just want to take a pause that you started in September 2020. It is now March. Wait. April 2022, <laughs> and you conducted two studies and finished your master's in less than two in less years. than two years. That is incredible. Yeah, and you're starting your PhD officially in the spring, but your work is or in the summer. oh my goodness fall <laughs> summer summer yeah summer <laughs> yeah you're starting your work in the summer, but you're already doing your PhD stuff right now, right? Yeah, just it's, trying to be as efficient as possible. I would say extremely efficient. That's URB. impressive. Very I hope impressive. everyone who's listening right now is applauding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's crazy. I also think we should give a, a quick shout out. I don't think we've mentioned your advisor, Elizabeth Tomasino, um, who... A fellow enologist, right? Yes, she's yes. an amazing, complete expert on wine. Um, I'm amazed every day the information that she tells me. <laughs> Not coming from a wine background myself, I've learned so much. Yeah. <laughs> but but we but we talked that luckily before coming here to study wines for your master's and PhD, you did actually like wines. Yes, not always a given i feel right no no certainly not (laughs) certainly not so uh you had some experience with wine in your past right where i feel like you did some travel and had some wine yeah so when i was in middle school actually i had the awesome opportunity to go to italy specifically in tuscany which is a very heavy wine region and i was with my parents and some family friends who love wine so of course me as a child got dragged from winery to winery (laughs) and me being into food and food science from a very young age i was very into going into all the wineries that would then show us their production facilities more at that age i was into the olive oil and bread they gave me but they would also give me pours of wine because at the age i was in italy it was very standard that i would be drinking wine so Although at that point I didn't appreciate it as much, I guess it definitely made an impact. It gave you at least a taste for it young Mm -hmm. when you were young. So that this winery um, or this trip to Tuscany was was during or just after your undergrad. But your kind of interest in food and maybe even food science, even though perhaps you didn't know yet that it was food science, already came as a kid, right? Mm -hmm. You would conduct your own little tastings at home? Yes. So (laughs) I I come from a very heavy Italian family. Uh, Cooking and baking was just something I did my entire life. Um, I used to play in the kitchen, like at my grandparents' house, just like with measuring cups and stuff. (laughs) And then That led me to stumble upon food science when I was in early high school and my mom works in the food industry and she was like, Jenna, like try out this science Olympiad event. It's food science. Like I can help you. (laughs) In which my response was, mom, no, I don't want to do what you do. Right. At that point, I wanted to be an astronomer completely separate from what she did. (laughs) And so then I begrudgingly did the event and fell in love with it. I found that it was completely different than what my mom does as an engineer, looking more at bacteria in milk. Uh, and where I could focus on how ingredients like impact foods and how mm. they make baked goods and things that taste nice. And now moving into things that taste bad. <laughs> I feel like your mom knew or at least somehow subconsciously knew that this was going to be right for you if she saw you 
playing with little measuring cups and food and just being very like particular about it and then pushing you into the science olympiad and it was just like a match made in heaven for you yeah definitely it's definitely a career field that not a lot of people know about i thought that i I would have to keep my love of food and my love of science separate and like my love of food would stay like more of a personal thing but then i was able to find the perfect marriage of my interest in culinary and my interest my heavy heavy interest in science and be able to make a career out of it yeah, I remember when we asked you in the in the pre-interview, like, oh, how did you get to food science? I was expecting something like, oh, I stumbled across this lab in my undergrad. But you were like, I decided on food science in the eighth grade. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I also think it's really interesting how in food science, this is like a shout out to food science in general, that like in your lab, you were eating and tasting things. Yeah. Right? Like, <laughs> yeah, it's is, kind of wild, yeah. um, especially with most of my friends in undergrad were chemistry and biochemistry <laughs> and they would come visit me in my lab and I'd be like eating lunch and they're like, what are you doing? Like you're eating lunch on your lab bench. I'm like, yeah, everything in here is food grade. Yeah. <laughs> and like drinking wine and making things at home. Right. I just yeah. think that's that's great. Um, and then so you went to where did you do your undergrad? So I did my undergrad at Ohio, the Ohio State University. Right, the Ohio State. The, yes. The other <laughs> OSU. Oh my gosh, I just realized that now. Yeah, <laughs> but they are the Ohio State yes. University. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and it was there in, in junior year that you decided, because I mean, food science is a huge field. You said there's something like 20,000 jobs in food science. Yeah, so they can range from uh, microbiology, food safety, food law, product development, quality assurance. Whoa. Um, and then into sensory science, which is what my focus is in. Right. And that's where you then you did your honors thesis between the difference of orthonasal and retronasal molecules, which we discussed at the start of the episode. Um, but there was something that you mentioned at the very end of the pre-interview, which is that you did a college program at Disney as well. So that was also during your undergrad? Yeah. So I took a whole semester off of my undergrad because Ohio State is on semesters. And so I spent four months in Disney World. Uh, not doing anything to do with science. I was just working as a quick service food and beverage cast member in a puppet costume <laughs> in the Magic what, what, Kingdom. What puppet? Can you divulge that or is that secret? No, so I worked at Pinocchio's Village House. Oh. So it was themed around Pinocchio. Wow. Um, it was an experience, uh, one that like definitely showed me a lot about the food industry from mm. the angle of being the person that's serving the food. Mm. Right. And luckily, while I was there, I got to tour their flavor lab and see where they do all of their uh, more culinary product development, which was mm. super fascinating. Right. Because at Disney, they like develop like a lot of like Disney, like movie themed foods and things like that. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. yeah. So at the time, they had just opened uh, Woody's Lunchbox. And so I got to hear about how they developed all these foods that revolved around Toy Story and how Whoa. they. Yeah. So, like, what was something that they make? What's a food? Do you remember? Yeah, so their their big thing there was potato barrels, which are just tater tots, but they came up with this like really cool oven system to be able to make them for the masses, so you didn't have to wait forever for your loaded tater tots. So they develop they developed a way to cook the potatoes. Like that was part of this like sensory lab at Disney. Yeah, so wow. yeah. <laughs> it's a yeah, I think I think Disney is even huger than most even more huge than most people think it is. Yeah, a lot of people don't know that there's actually a USDA research facility in Disney World. (laughs) I didn't know that. Whoa, I did not know that either. (laughs) Crazy. But but that's such a cool, cool additional thing that Mm -hmm. you you did during undergrad. And I think it helps you, like you said, to see this other side Mm. of the food, 
a food science and the food industry. Like if you're in food, you want to be part of the whole thing and get the whole experience. Yeah, especially because I'm making decisions sometimes like as a food scientist, not ever interacting with a consumer. And we at the location I worked at had a menu change in the middle of my program and seeing how consumers reacted to that like the people who made the decision to change the menu would have never interacted with the consumer but I had to hear every day about how they were so upset that this Caesar salad was taken off the menu and <laughs> being able to be like okay so down when I'm in this a position right. of authority being able to be like okay let's make sure that people aren't going to be really angry by this right and I think that's important too because um like it seems like with your PhD work moving forward it's not always going to be focused the end product of you know finding these compounds or um doing a sort of a a predictive model isn't going to necessarily help the consumer but more like winemakers but that's still like having that in the back of your mind i'm sure there's like really going to help finding that sort of end product having that goal at the end yeah definitely our lab really tries to help winemakers as much as possible because especially how big of an industry it is on the west coast trying to be able to provide as much resources to them as possible And then at the end of the day, being able to guide them to be able to produce things that consumers want, because at the end of the day, that's who drinks, who drink wine. Like we can put them through chemical machines as much as we want, (laughs) but they don't drink wine or buy it. (laughs) I think it's surprising how like not cognizant sometimes people up, people higher up in the food industry maybe are like you're talking about making the decision to take that Caesar salad off. So like having that sort of root rooted back to thinking about that is probably really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So at the end of your undergrad at The Ohio State right. University, you knew that you wanted to to work within the realm of um, like the sensory field of food science. What what brought you to OSU or what brought you to wine? Like was wine the thing you were pursuing or were you just looking for sensory field, whatever you could get? So I was specifically looking more at sensory. Wine was never really on my radar. Um, It might be a surprise to most people. There's not a lot of wine produced in Ohio. (laughs) So we didn't do a ton of wine research. I was on a wine project, but it had nothing to do with the wine itself. It was just more of a instrument used. So in Ohio, I mostly studied how human perception worked. So using foods to better understand humans. But then I really wanted to focus on my PhD uh, using people to better understand food which is what I found here. So really using people as instruments to try to be able to better understand what these natural disasters have on wines. Mm -hmm. I mean, especially moving forward, we're probably going to see wildfires increase more and more in intensity and duration and frequency. Yes. The hope is with some, uh, I know with some research that our forest management uh, department here has been doing hopefully they can be put at bay as much as possible but being more knowledgeable never hurts right definitely yes. there's definitely management out there that can be done to not oh, yeah. have it be so dire yeah um i think before we um move on to our kind of final portion of the episode let's just plug the sensory wine lab one more time yeah. tell people the link where to go s- to drink wine and get paid for it and help you okay so it's <laughs> beav.es slash wine Um, You can sign up there and you will get many emails from us as we run a a bunch of panels. I know we have a a bunch coming up spanning not only my smoke affected ones, but some some better ones as well. (laughs) Right. So it just gets them on to it and there's stuff happening all the time, right? They can do it and -hmm. they can decide to... Yep, you can choose to participate or you can choose to not sign up for panels. It's completely up to you. So it's like beavers, but sort of not beeves. 
Beave.es. I think yeah. it's like OSU's like shortened URL. Right, mm-hmm. right. Yeah, for those. And it's also, we can find the link on our blog. Yes, exactly. At the very bottom of it. Yeah. Jenna, this has been such a fun interview. And I, I think I speak for everyone on inspiration dissemination that you should come back in a few years yeah. when you're a few years into your PhD. <laughs> yeah, we want to hear what happens with this model. What, 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 are, the, what are the compounds yeah. oh, in smoke? And about your, we didn't even mention this, right. you're going to do an, an internship in New Zealand. Yeah, so the hopes are in, um, not this year, but in the coming years to potentially go to New Zealand and do some research there. Again, looking at the difference not only between East Coast and West Coast, but Australia has also been heavily impacted by wildfires. So seeing kind of how down there is different as well. It's kind of sad that that's what's bringing you to New Zealand is the fact that they're having terrible wildfires. But I hope that it's going to be an awesome experience. Uh, so one of our as so thank you very much. And uh, we have two traditions on the show. One is that you get to give a piece of advice to anyone, your future self, your former self, other students, whatever you want. So this is your chance to give a piece of advice and tell us what it is and who it's for. So um, my advice actually comes from a Pixar movie. So it's from <laughs> Luca. It's Silencio Bruno. Um, it's a saying that my my best friend and I say to each other, it's to not let fear drive your life, to kind of silence that voice and go for it and take advantage of the opportunities presented to you. Over the past four years, I've lived in six cities. Wow. And they've taken me hundreds of miles away from the things and people I've known. And honestly, I wouldn't take any of those experiences back. They've made me the person I am today. And I would go to six more cities over the next four years if I could just to be able to experience the world. So and don't it, let those fears drive you. Yeah, <laughs> and, and viewers can't see, but Jenna's has like a huge smile on her face right now. <laughs> and it's just like beaming. So I think that this is a, a great piece of advice. And I don't think we've ever had a like Pixar Disney themed piece of advice. I really like that. <laughs> no, yeah, I think it's great. It's a it's a really cute movie, too. And sticking with that theme, yes. why don't you tell us for our second tradition, you get to pick your outro song. So tell us about the outro song that you have picked. So this song is Le Festa from Ratatouille. Um, I absolutely adore this film and it just really captures, I think, me as a person of just cooking. And this song talks about flavors and just like savoring the flavor of life. And I hope you all enjoy. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Jenna. Everyone enjoy La Festa. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamad. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening and stay curious, my friends.